AppDynamics has launched AppDynamics Cloud. Ingest all metrics, events, logs, and trace data and visualize your full stack of cloud-native architectures at scale. Learn more and observe what matters at appdynamics.com slash cloudtourpromo. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Full Stack Journey podcast, where we talk about the ongoing evolution of the IT professional. I'm Drew Connery Murray from the Pack of Pushers with co-host Ethan Banks. Scott Lowe's away for this month's episode. On today's show, we're going to go climb the stairs of the ivory tower to get a look at the technology industry from the perspective of the academy. Our guest is Dave Levin. He is assistant professor of computer science at the University of Maryland. Dr. Levin's research focuses on networking and security, including measurement, cryptography, artificial intelligence, and economics. Dr. Levin is a returning guest. We talked to him on uh, other shows on the Packet Pushers podcast network about DDoS attacks, uh, techniques, and alibi routing. On today's show, we're going to talk uh, about Dr. Levin's background, how he got into computing, some interesting research projects he's working on, what life is like as an academic in the technology space, and his take on developments in the industry. Uh, Dave, welcome back to the podcast. And just sort of get us started, what, you know, as a kid or as an adult got you interested in computers and technology? Like, did you grow up around computers? Was it something in a house or just something you came to on your own? Happy to answer. First off, guys, thanks so much for having me back. Love the podcast. Uh, love chatting with you guys. Um, yeah, so growing up, uh, I don't really remember computers being around too, too much. We had a computer. My dad certainly had, going back to Apple II, like way back, because mm -hmm. he ran a uh, his own business out of our house. I didn't get too, too much uh, use out of it. Like my first real use with computers was probably my TI-85 um, learning how to program that, how to, um, <laughs> and of course, doing it, I thought I was, you know, sort of circumventing uh, all, all the <laughs> restrictions of school because I was like, you know what, instead of me doing this work, I'm going to write a program to do it for me. Uh, not even thinking I was being like clever doing what a programmer should do, but I, I just saw it all as kind of like cheating in a way. <laughs> um, <laughs> and one of my teachers fortunately said, you know, we kind of fessed up to him, like, hey, I have to admit, I, I you know, a buddy of mine and I, we wrote this program. He said, well, if you're smart enough to program it, you're smart enough to know it. So it's fine by me. You can use it. I was like, what? Oh, nice. Maybe programming isn't <laughs> cheating. Maybe it's actually kind of a good thing. Let me let me explore this some more. And so that that's really sort of where things things started off. But, but I think where, where I really started getting exposed to computers was a summer internship that I had. And to show how little I knew prior to that, I show up. And uh, my internship boss said, okay, so do you know Unix? I said, I think I've heard of her. I said, okay, have a seat here. <laughs> this, is, this is a man page. Go familiarize yourself. And I think that was really my, my big uh, exposure to it. And that was, you know, I think junior, senior year of high school. Mm, okay. So what made you then uh, want to get into a PhD? Because that's a significant undertaking. That's a leap. So... I was really into computers, started getting more and more into it. I majored in that. But at the same time, I was also really into tuba. I'm sure we've all been there. We've all been <laughs> at this crossroads, right? <laughs> I'm not the only one where, you know, you're sitting there, you say, I'm taking too many credits, trying to major in, in both in tuba and CS. Uh, and so at, at some point I had to decide. Um, and it was, it was, in all seriousness, it was basically a coin flip to me. I loved them both. There's a lot more similarity between music and computer science, at least the way I sort of see it, um, than, than it might seem. And so I, I really, really wasn't sure. And so then there was one summer after my sophomore year, I want to say, in college, where I tried out for a tuba gig, like a real paying gig. And it would have been to be to play down in Disney World. Mm. And 
And it was, you know, just like American Idol where you're like warming up and there's everybody there and then you get called in one by one. It was just like that. Mm-hmm. Except, you know, not televised or terribly interesting. <laughs> and so I'm sitting out there and I'm just warming up, playing some scales or something. And, it's, and at this stage, it was just all the tuba players. And this one guy comes up to me and he goes, uh, apropos of nothing, comes up to me and says, that's a nice tuba. Mine's better. And I just, <laughs> I guess trying to intimidate me. And I'm like, are we in an 80s movie right now? Like, what is going on? Do I have to like save the ski lodge or something by playing the best tuba song? And so, um, and it just kind of clicked with me. I'm like, wow, this is, this is really cutthroat and not very competitive. I mean, we're tuba players for crying out loud. We're, we should be a bunch of Santa Clauses, like just jolly, <laughs> like whatever. How seriously can you really take? Um, and with all due respect, like to the music, I've gotten to know the music industry much more through some of my, you know, grad school housemates and everything. And and, and it's, it's, I think, much more supportive than, than it, the impression that it gave me. But I said, you know, I'm just inherently not that competitive of a person. I'm much more interested in collaboration. And in my mind, computer science, there's more than enough to go around. We can collaborate together and, and do great things together. That just much more appealed to me rather than constantly. I had this fear that I'd constantly be looking over my shoulder in the field of music or somebody trying to steal my seat or something. I don't think that really happens in practice, but that was my perception at the time. I said, you know what? I, I love them both. And I just, I don't want this feeling of competition. I just want to collaborate. I want to work on cool things. And that's where I ended up going to, to computer science solely. And, uh, and, and ultimately, what, what really drove me to academia was, was one class that I took uh, with the person who ended up being my PhD advisor, and it was undergrad networking. And uh. it, it's really the way he taught it and the way he thought about things. And this is, you know, as I was thinking about, when you guys invited me to this podcast, part of me was kind of like, what does anybody care about? about my life or my journey or anything. But as I was thinking about it, I was like, you know what? There are a few sort of things along the way that that other people have had influence on me and that I've had the opportunity to have influence on other people. And if and if I could kind of extract some of those things and hopefully, you know, bring that bring that to light, then then I thought that that was really compelling. And so one of the so so with this in this particular case, the way he taught networking was an absolute game changer to me. So what he he didn't just get up there and say this is the TCP three way handshake. There's a sin, then a synac, then an ACK, and then but here's the packet header structure. This is the protocol. Goodbye. Right? He did not lecture at us, and it's going to sound so obvious and stupid, but he would pose a problem. Okay, guys, we have IP. IP doesn't offer this kind of reliability. How can we make it? And then, mm. as a class, we would collaboratively come up with the protocol. What about this? Okay, let's try this. Oh, what about this issue? What about that? Um, and then by the end of the lecture. In the last few minutes of the lecture, he'd say, "Okay, guys, you basically throughout the course of this class came up with TCP Reno with a couple examples, <laughs> with a couple exceptions. Here's this and this and this, and then you guys chose to do this, but there's been recent papers that showed this and da 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 da, and it left me with with two feelings. Number one, I can do this. I just invented with my classmates. We just invented this particular <laughs> protocol. We did it. It's not that I just understand it. I came up with it and I get it." And some of the ideas I have, he's saying that they're recent papers that people are just exploring. I feel like I could legitimately do this because I feel like I just did. And number two, just the way that my advisor thought about stuff, just the way he perceived things. I, I, part of me was like, I want to be able to think like that. I want to learn from him. I want to be able to think like that and and apply it in whatever way. And And that was it for me. I did not make a very informed decision getting a PhD. I didn't know what kinds of careers it opened up, what it really uh, entailed. I just knew I liked coming up with new things. I liked the way this guy thought 
what could be better than to be able to think like that? And who knows where that takes me? Okay, so you just wanted to go further than than the undergrad. You were so enthralled because of the inspiration uh, that this instructor provided that you decided you wanted to keep going. But, and that is not a light undertaking, Dave. So I mean, you're it's almost understated the way you're phrasing it. But this was <laughs> to me, this is kind of life altering to run into an instructor who was so capable and so inspirational that you would continue down this road rather than I'm going to get my undergrad degree and you know then get a job, which is what most people do. Well, I did. I did go and get a job. Um, I graduated. I got a job as a software engineer in a small government subcontractor. Um, and and the way that that went is I showed up and they're like, okay, here's this particular task. And so I worked on it, implemented it. Did I said, okay, great. I learned a lot. What's next? And they said, well, you know, just, you know, maintain that for pretty much your career. Said, really? Like, yeah, it's a small operation. We have like one big um, source of funding. And this is, this is, this is the service that we offer. So you're just going to own that piece. And part of something clicked with me then where I said, you know, I like to work on, you know, new things, like cool new things. I don't really know what research is, but it seems like research by definition has to be something new and it should be something cool. So maybe I want to get, go back to grad school. And to be honest with you, throughout this whole conversation, you're just going to see, I'm going to sound like Mr. Magoo. I'm serious. I just stumbled into things uh, that whatever... (laughs) But not unforced error, unforced wins or whatever. So in this case, I said, you know what? I think I want to go and just get a master's degree. So I applied to Maryland, which is where I got my, my, my the University of Maryland, which is where I got my bachelor's for master's. And I get this letter saying, you've been admitted to the PhD program. And I'm like, oh my goodness, they must see so much potential in me that they said, no, you shouldn't get a master's. You should get a PhD. They're calling me to action. I have to take this. I need to quit this job. I was just going to do a master's degree sort of part-time. I need to quit. I need to go full-time. What I didn't know at the time is that they didn't just admit people just to the master's program at the time. If you got in, you were just admitted to the PhD program. It's not that they, they thought, maybe they did. I don't know. But it was just, oops. Oh, well, that's fine. Um, and so I said, all right, you, let's do it. You felt the it. heavens were shining down yeah. upon you and saying, this is Yeah, they're destiny. just like, oh, no, that's, that's just administrative. That's, that's just admin, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, uh, but so, but but honestly, uh, you you say that it sounds like it was taken lately, and it was because I, I didn't know I didn't know what a PhD really entailed, so there was really no good reason for me to have even gone into it, and that's why one of the things I've really committed a, a lot of my my time as a professor towards is helping undergraduates make a more informed decision because there's a lot of undergrads who say I don't want to get a PhD. And oftentimes it's not for the right reasons. Now I'm I'm not trying to trick people into getting a PhD. I don't value, I don't have some metric that says, mm-hmm. you know, uh, you know, uh, some calendar. How many people did I trick into getting a PhD? It's it's about <laughs> making a informed decision because you're students, not getting a kickback from well, the University of Maryland for everybody you bring in. If the only, if only, <laughs> uh, please, you know, put in apply to UMD slash Dave for no um <laughs> for five percent off your first. <laughs> shipment of books. No, I don't know. I'm just kidding. Just kidding. Um, no. So, uh, but there's students I've told just, I'll, I'll tell one quick anecdote. There's a student, one of our top undergrads at the time. And I was talking to him. I said, Hey, you're getting ready to graduate. What's next for you? He said, I don't know, not research. I said, okay. <laughs> All right. That's fine. Like, well, well can I ask why? So yeah. Cause I want to work on cool new things. What? In my mind, I'm like, I, okay. I thought that's what 
research was, but okay, mm-hmm. so so what are you working on now that's exciting? He's like, oh, I'm working with this professor and we're seeing if it's possible to measure network. I'm like, dude, that's research. What are you saying? It is? <laughs> so rule, step number one was they didn't even know what it was, let alone should they pursue um, a, a career in it. And so, and at the same time, I have other students who come to me and say, I want to get a PhD because I want to be a programmer and I want to get hired with a higher salary. I go, oh, no, 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 no. Then just skip the PhD. <laughs> if that's, if, if you can get the job now, get the job now. Cause all mm-hmm. the time, uh, of that you're going towards getting the PhD is it, you'd have to get a much, much, much higher salary to make up for that. So if that's what you want to do, just to, so in both sides of it, I think folks should, I just want folks to make a more informed decision. And a lot of times that means learning what research is, what academia is, what, it, what kinds of impact you can have as a researcher. And these were all things that to be honest, I just did not know. And I just kind of blindly stumbled into what happened to be exactly the right thing for me. But you can you can do research in private industry, uh, Dave. I know my son's uh, undergrad degree is in biotech of some flavor, and he's looking at that now. He could go work for big pharma and do research in a lab and you know make a lot of money and all that stuff. Or he could certainly stay in academia, work on a PhD, and continue research in in that world. So you you ended up sticking with academia rather than going into to private industry. Was that a conscious choice? Uh, well, actually, I did go into private industry too. I kind of, <laughs> I think I've done just about all of it. So after I got my PhD, I really wanted to go into academia. And to be honest with you, again, um, it was uh, just luck or, or or misfortune or whatever that when I happened to. Um, apply that year. This I was going on the market like 2010. And so this was when this was after so after a big uh economic downturn, like in 2008, mm-hmm. academia lags a little bit. So in 2010, that's when almost nobody was hiring at the time. And so, so you're coming I out didn't, uh with your new uh PhD looking to land a job in a university and things that's were really right. tight. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And so a lot of places just weren't even interviewing there's one school I interviewed at and they said, look, we want to interview you. We don't think we have any money, but just in case we can find it, we want to uh-huh. have money. <laughs> and when they ended up not having money. Um, and so where I ended up taking a job was at HP Labs out in Palo Alto. Uh, so industry research. And there's a lot of benefits to industry research. And for some folks, it is 1000% the right place for them. Um, for me, it it didn't quite click. And I think one of the reasons it didn't click was because I felt, at least at the time, that I I didn't quite have the the degrees of freedom that I wanted as a researcher. Right. right. So if I say if I were to say, hey, I just came up with this idea, I'm not sure which direction it's going, then one of the first questions you might ask is, how's that going to make the company a billion dollars? Right. Like, I don't know how we're making a billion dollars now. It's not, it's not printer ink. I don't know. And the day I figure out how to make a billion dollars is the day that you don't see right. I'm not going to tell um, you. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that's sort of number one where it's like, I, I don't know how to think like that. It felt like it tethered the ideas a bit. Um, and especially at that very, very early stage. And the other thing was I couldn't, I couldn't completely work with whoever I wanted to work with. I was at a for-profit company. If I worked with people from another for-profit company, it could be problematic depending on, because IP, um, sure. intellectual property, all, all these different issues. And so ultimately I kind of realized, you know what, this, this isn't quite the place for me. Uh, and so, but I wasn't sure that academia was either, to be honest. And so what I did is I kind of went and I, I had, I uh, interviewed pretty widely. So I was sitting on offers from Big Switch, 
uh, which is SDN company. This was in we 2012. Like, mm-hmm. oh yeah, right. So I, man, did I believe uh, in that. I still do. A great group of folks, uh, but I really, really believed uh, in, in their product. Uh, I was entertaining an offer from Google. I was talking to their product groups to decide like who would I want to work with. And then I also had this offer to come back as a research scientist uh, back at the University of Maryland to go sort of get back into academia after being in industry for two years. And that decision, I put a lot of thought into that decision process. And it was really, I think, formative uh, for me in terms of defining like my future career path. Because, you know, when you're when you're trying to decide whether or not to take an offer from a startup, in my mind, it's largely about the product. If I, I was like, if I don't believe in this product, I don't want to take the job. Like it would mm-hmm. be a disservice to them if I'm not really believing in it. And then on the Google side, I'm talking to different product groups. So it's like, okay, which product do I most want to work on? And so it was all product, 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 and then academia. And I was like, okay, well, if I'm thinking about products so much, what's the product of academia? And I'm like, well, I guess it's papers. All right, well, I've worked in academia for a bunch. So let me go look at my product. And I go and I pull up my CV and I'm looking at my papers. And I'll be honest with you, I was my reaction was, who cares? Who cares about any? Look at that. I mean, they're fun papers to work on. And I'll say, like, since then, the, the papers that my students have written since then, I think really do have very like significant real world impact. But at least at the time, I was like, who's reading this? I don't even know if the reviewers read these papers for crying out loud, <laughs> let alone other folks. So what? But then I started going, oh, you know what? That's the paper where Aaron learned how to plot. And, oh, that's the paper where this student learned how to write. And that's the paper where this other student learned this. And that's when it clicked for me. The papers aren't the product in academia. The students are the product. The only way that we know how to teach research is this apprenticeship style of learning by doing. We don't, we don't know how to lecture how to how to do research, okay? It's, it's apprenticeship style. You work with somebody. We work with your advisor. You do the research. Those papers are the vehicle of education. And the real product is, are the students, the intellectual freedom that, that they're able to have because of the tools that you instill in them to be able to be independent thought leaders. And that's why I said, okay, all right, I get it now. So with the startup, there's this product. With Google, there's a set of products. And with academia, there's the students. I said, okay, well, this is a big career decision. Yeah. Which one, when I look at the, when I look back at the end of my career, which one am I going to be most proud of? And that's when there was just no, no contest, right? I was like, dang, I guess I got to go back into academia now. (laughs) And so I, that, that was the path for me. It it really, I'm very fortunate that um, it's easy for when you get into grad school, it's easy to, to just fall into this, this track where you go, okay, well, I'm always, I'm, uh, what's the most competitive job I can get? Academia. Okay, well, I got to get there. What's the most ac- competitive place I could I could publish? What's the most competitive? Blah, 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 blah. It's easy to just be like, I'm doing this because it's the hardest thing to get. And if I get the hardest thing, that means I'm the best or that means this or that. And as, even though I'm not inherently a competitive person, it's just it's just easy to default to that. Uh, and I'm, I'm very, very fortunate that I got to sort of step out and evaluate, like really, really evaluate so that then going into academia was was really not the path of least resistance. Um, and it it really took, took a big out. And, and I'm so glad because I think then going through as a research scientist and then the tenure track with without really having that compass and really knowing what I was doing there, why I was doing what what it is I was here for, um, I, I think it would have been much, much more difficult. So I'm, I'm really fortunate for that. We'll get you back to Full Stack Journey after this from sponsor AppDynamics. 
AppDynamics Cloud is observability for your cloud-native stack. Feed AppDynamics Cloud telemetry, and it will feed you visualizations and insights about your applications and infrastructure. AppDynamics Cloud is purpose-built to observe your full stack of cloud-native architectures at scale. Ingest and visualize all metrics, events, logs, and trace data across your entire technology landscape. And a key idea behind AppDynamics Cloud is to help you make use of all that telemetry, correlate it between systems, map your dependencies, the relationships, even your ephemeral services, look across domains to understand how a slow stack component is impacting the rest of the system and get to the root cause of production impacting issues quickly. AppDynamics Cloud is more than just troubleshooting, though. The tool offers AI-driven insights designed to point out issues before they become problems for your enterprise. So be proactive. Stay ahead of failures to maintain availability and optimize performance. With AppDynamics Cloud, you can make sense of the current state of the entire IT stack all the way to the end user. And from there, you can take action to optimize costs, help the business maximize revenue per transaction, and better secure data. Learn more and observe what matters at appdynamics.com slash cloud tour promo. That is appdynamics.com slash cloud tour promo. And now back to full stack journey. So I'm curious because my understanding of uh, academic, the academic industry isn't the right word, but uh, working in the academy is that you know, the two major outputs you're supposed to produce are either papers or grants. Uh, so how do you rectify that with wanting to do a good job with your students, the, the pressures you have to either bring in money or put out papers? So one of the things I like about research in academia is that the way you define, there's, there's no one definition for impact. There's some people who their definition for impact is citation count or age mm -hmm. index, or number of publications, or amount of grant money, or how many startups they've spurned out, whatever the case may be, press coverage, whatever. And the answer is, yeah, all of those are totally fine. You, everybody defines impact in a slightly different way. And what you need to do if you're considering going into academia is find a department that values your definition of impact. If all you're doing is if you're just chasing grant money and you couldn't care less about the money uh, that you get from the grants, and you're like, it's a pain to spend all of this. I don't even know what I'm doing. But that's what your department demands. Then, then try to find a different department. For me, it's been all about empowering the students. And the way that I try to empower the students sometimes is through publications. Sometimes it's through other things and just holding information sessions that won't show up anywhere on any publication list. Mm -hmm. But a lot of it for me is empowering undergraduates especially to publish and to see what it's like and so it just so happens that for me it's it's aligned right like what by empowering and teaching the students again the papers are the vehicle and it's like oh you're 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 evaluating me based on the vehicle all right that's fine that's <laughs> not my end result um but I'm, I'm also very fortunate that a lot of my colleagues here at the university of maryland they see what i'm doing with the undergrads and with my grad students and the kind of impact that it has on them and and that's really what what's what's valuable. So I, I all this other stuff, paper publications and grant money, I view them as means to the end. And if if I was at a department that didn't view it the same way, then my values just wouldn't align. And I, I think I would try to go somewhere else. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. but but it's a means to an end. Now at the same time, sometimes I can't reach that end unless I'm getting grant money and unless I'm I'm publishing. And so fortunately I've been 
uh, I've, I've been able to do that. And that's where my time as a research scientist before I became tenure track was also kind of helpful in the sense that that was a, um, what they call a soft money position, which means no money position. So after the first year or two, uh, I had to pay my own salary completely off of grants. Okay. Uh, and so I had to get really good at it. Um, and at that point I said, well, why don't you just give me an infinite salary? So then I have incentive to get it as much grant money as I can. And they're like, well, that would make it pretty easy to like launder money through academia. Okay, fine, fine, fine. Um, so still got to revisit that one. Um, but but yeah, so I, I think it, I, I, for one, I hopefully we'll have a chance to talk about funding a little bit. I, I think some folks hate this idea of applying for funding. I think there's parts of it I really, really like. Uh, so I don't mind that too much. But uh, but all that stuff I see as, as, as the means the means to the end. Uh, but as the moment that I felt like they were becoming the end and not the means, then I would just, I think I would leave academia, right? Because the the whole point of this job is that I get to work on what I want to work on and I get to work with who I want to work with. That was the whole thing that got me to even leave the, the previous job I had anyway. And the second that that no longer becomes true, then what am I doing here, right? And so it just so happens that there are ways to align the sort of traditional metrics with with what I consider to be my values. Well, Dave, we do want to talk about funding at some point, but before we get there, it would be helpful to set the set the base for us with what your research work is these days. What sort of projects are getting grant money? What's getting funded? What are you guys working on? Lots of fun stuff going on. I'm actually in our uh, undergrad research lab right now. I'm surrounded by completely dissected IoT devices, what they deserve. No, um, so they, uh, <laughs> a few different things, a few different things. Ultimately, the main underlying thing that that drives our research, uh, for the most part, is um, is, is protecting users. It's very user centric. How what can we do to help protect end users, uh, both you know just people at home as well as you know operators, their users too, administrators, programmers, are users too. But just to like to broadly identify risks and threats and to try to mitigate them as much as possible. Uh, so I'll tell you about a couple of different research projects. So on the IoT side, right? So we, we all know that these IoT devices are defenseless for the most part. And there's lots of good economic incentive not to put defenses in there. They're not obligated to do so. There's every incentive otherwise to just enter the market as quickly as possible. So if they have neither the incentive nor the resources to have defenses within their system, to what extent can I add defenses from the outside? Uh, so exploring different things like what, what would normally be a side channel attack, but sort of like a side channel defense. What can I extract from the outside? What, what can I infer from outside of, of a webcam, of a router, of a, of a pet feeder, for crying out loud, um, like power consumption, heat dissipation, these types of things that would indicate something weird is going on on this device that's not normal. Um, and actually that project right now, uh, is one of the primary leaders of that project is a high school senior, um, who's just been absolutely crushing it. Uh, in fact, some of his work has even led to some CVEs for LaFun webcams. Uh, this, it's amazing, just amazing the skills that they have. Um, another interesting project that we've been fortunate to get a good amount of funding for, for what it's worth, uh, is our work on, on measuring and circumventing censorship by nation state actors. Uh, so as you probably know, China, Iran, India, Kazakhstan, Russia, uh, Belarus, uh, Turkmenistan, Myanmar, many, many countries uh, censor traffic going in and out uh, of their countries. 
And oftentimes it's to block political discourse, competing political thoughts, even just basic information about women's reproductive health. Um, and so with, uh, with, uh, with a lot of undergrads and led by uh, somebody else who's appeared on this podcast, Kevin Bach, uh, we developed this this tool that we call Geneva, which is sort of short for genetic evasion. It's a genetic algorithm that automatically trains against nation state sensors and automatically learns how to manipulate packets in order to evade censorship. Um, and it has discovered hundreds of different strategies now to evade censorship in all these different countries. Uh, some of them involve even evading censorship without having to modify the client who's inside of the censoring regime at all. So just by manipulating packets from the server side who's sitting outside of the censorship regime, that in, in all these different countries is enough to evade censorship. Uh, and so this is what I was talking about where, you know, there's, I'm really proud of the actual like products of the work itself, even though they are the means to the ultimate end, really proud of the the sort of byproduct of the the tools that these students have built and the papers they've put out because I think it's really changed how we think about going about um, understanding how sensors operate and how to evade them. Uh, so these are a few different uh, problems. There, there's one that I'm not quite ready to give details about yet, hopefully in a few months, but it has to do uh, with investigating some police procedure uh, and a bit of shortcomings there that are potentially putting some folks at risk. Interesting. Yeah, I can see why this kind of research and the freedom to investigate uh, would have an appeal versus like working for, um, you know, a tech company where your objective is to make this page load 0.05 milliseconds faster. <laughs> so at the end of the day, you feel like, oh, great, it's loading 0.5 milliseconds faster versus, <laughs> hey, we could help people get around, you know, giant internet firewalls. Well, in, in all fairness, there are plenty of industry uh folks and industry partners out there who are also focusing on this. Even Google uh, has their has a whole group of folks doing amazing work on um on measuring and evading censorship. Uh, and a lot of there are a lot of good VPN providers out there. There are some that may very well also themselves be state actors as far as 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 far as we know. Uh, but so there there's there are indeed lots of opportunities to do this from within industry. But yeah, what I like is that, uh, I get to jump around with all these things. How many, how many, what job could I have that would have allowed me to do all of these things simultaneously? Investigating police procedure, right? Evading censorship, uh, going after IoT devices, looking at the the web's PKI. I don't know, but with academia, I get to jump around quite a bit. It's it's really rewarding. But it, but in all these cases, we found uh, some folks from industry uh, to work with as well. Um, so but that's what's great is I get to work with who I want to work with. Uh, I I couldn't be happier about that. So it sounds like a lot of your research may be student-led, but do you have sort of essential questions that you're hoping to answer or essential interests that are driving what you want to do and where you might want to direct student interests? Not, you know, one of the things I tell students, and to be honest with you, I, I think it I think it scares away prospective PhD students, is that I don't have a research agenda. Mm -hmm. um, I think that scares them away because I think they say, well, <laughs> what? What am I going to well, do? If my don't know my agenda doing, is to maybe. my students. I know what I'm doing, but I don't have my own agenda. Uh, I just I want to help my students and and help guide my students. And so what I what I really try to do is encourage them and train them in asking good research questions, which is hard, but it's something that that you can practice. Now, of course, there are things that I'm interested in, and ultimately, I am interested in how does the internet work, 
what are the economic incentives? What happens when usability and and um, and oppression of users and and networking when those all sort of intersect? And that ultimately, how can we help people? Right? What are what are we doing? Like, there, we've imbued an incredible amount of trust and power into a small set of people. How is that affecting? real users and what can we do to improve that so, so they're definitely like i definitely have an affinity towards certain kinds of questions mm -hmm. but when i when i you know uh, take on a, a new student that i'm advising I, i'm not looking at them as like you're my employee here are the set of research questions i have you are here to implement them i i'm looking at you know what are you interested in what can we try to do to to bring your research agenda to the fore um so so i think i yeah i have interest but there's not like a set of specific questions that that I say we have to be driven to this yeah hmm. uh, of the topics that you've researched uh, I don't think you said AI uh, although I think there's some AI that kind of does uh, does apply with some of your work but it's all over the vendor space Dave everyone's talking about AI ops and AI this and AI that that they sprinkle on top of all the marketing literature to the point that drew and Drew and I and Greg and, you know, those of us that observe the industry are kind of just, we're tired of hearing about it, man. But is there something <laughs> real there? Is there something uh, honestly worthwhile going on with artificial intelligence? It's obviously real. I mean, we've seen the outcome of a lot of these AI-based tools. But I'm going to, this was a little bit of maybe my own naivete, but at the same time, I haven't when I mentioned this to others, I, I haven't really gotten a, a solid response back. I'm not sure that we know exactly what this AI is really doing. It can succeed in really surprising ways mm -hmm. and it can fail in really surprising ways. And I, I think right now, and again, there might be some folks who have really keen insight and are just much, much smarter and more informed about this than I am, but it sure feels like a big black box to me right now. Mm -hmm. It feels to me like, I did this thing and this thing came out. And when I turn this knob, something different comes out. I, I'm not 100% sure why, but it happens. And it happened on this data set. So maybe it will happen on your data set. I don't know. Is there something about this data set that made it more or less susceptible to this? I don't know. It, Whatever, 99%. Doesn't it look interesting? <laughs> and so so here's, I, I think there's a way to approach this in, at the same time, it, it, it's real. There's some interesting results that come out. Geneva it's it's a very simple basic ai it's basic genetic algorithm it's not you know deep convolutional neural network network or anything like that this Could is the be. ai um, you did uh, the research on evading censorship exactly and um but with this case we're not just hand sit, giving it the wheel and saying just do whatever and we won't you know interrogate what you're doing we look at what it finds and sometimes it pushes it more often than not, it pushes us in a direction that we said we wouldn't have even thought of that. Wow. Thank you for pointing this to our direction. But we always from day one, um, our goal was to try to understand, well, what is it actually doing? It's not just a black box. It's outputting, you know, here, here's how I changed the, the packet. Here's what affects it. And one of the things we baked into it was to help with explainability was we said um, all other things being equal, try to, you know, achieve censorship evasion with the fewest packet manipulations possible. And so it tries to pare, down, pare it down to, to the really like quintessential parts of, of the strategy. And the reason is that we could look at it and learn and understand it. And then you can take away the AI and that's that's fine because then we've learned what it, what it taught. So, so I think there's a healthy a way to embrace AI and to incorporate it. Um, and there's things that it can do that that 
yeah, are, are very difficult or extremely time consuming to do otherwise. It's a it's a means of automation, but it can't be the thing that you just give all decision-making control to, mm-hmm. uh, especially if you don't understand what it's actually doing. So I think it can help you help point you in the right direction, but when you give it everything, it's it, it will fail in ways that surprise. If you are surprised by what it finds in terms of, in, in a positive way, you're going to be equally surprised in terms of what it completely messes up. Now, David, are you saying as far as not understanding what the AI is doing, that no one is really grasping how these algorithms are working or that it's just a select few that get it and most people that are leveraging the technology is like, I don't know how it works. It's kind of magic. I'm not sure if anybody fully understands. No, of course, everybody. there's a lot of folks who understand the individual building blocks and who have a really solid intuition for why something may or may not work. Um, but look no further than instances of adversarial machine learning, right? Where tiny, tiny, there's lots of different forms of this, but one example is tiny, tiny perturbations to an input can just drive something like an AI-based classifier into completely bizarre territory, right? So you, you, we, are, we are sort of projecting our own understanding onto when we look at the outputs of AI, we're projecting if this AI could get that, it must understand things the way I understand it. And the answer is it, it doesn't. And you mm-hmm. can't really reason about it the same way that you would reason about it. So a classic example, I, I take a picture of like a, a dog and I give that picture of a dog to an AI classifier. I say, what is this? And it says, hey, with 89% confidence, that's a dog. Great. I go, I flip a handful of pixels or I change it in ways that are imperceptible to the human eye. And it comes back and says, oh, now I'm 99% certain that that's a hummingbird. Right. That is just not something that a human would do. And we're like, we're, we're, there's a lot of back and forth, this cat and mouse game of like, oh, well, maybe if I just make a few different tweaks to this, if I train it slightly differently. And then there's another form of adversarial attack on this that basically achieves the same thing. And the question is, well, why? Why you look at this? It still looks to me like a dog. Why is it inferring something different? Or another classic example. Uh, there was this was like a DARPA Grand Challenge where there was a car, a, a fully autonomous vehicle. Um, it was in this you know controlled little parking, um, little driving lot. And at one point, it's leaving from the stop sign. There's a speed limit sign that says like five miles an hour or something, and it floors it and accelerates into a ditch. And they go back and like, what the heck was going on? And it's because the way that it learned how to read speed limit signs it thought that that five mile an hour thing was like a 55 mile an hour sign. Like, why? That's, that's weird. Why would it do that? And it's because when they trained it, the 55 mile an hour speed limit sign had a little smudge of dirt in the corner and it associated that dirt with 55 miles an hour and the five mile an hour one had a smudge wow. of dirt on too, right? So it's th- these sorts of things where it's like, wow, it works. Why does it work? Well, don't worry about it. Well, I worry about it. <laughs> when, I, when I have a Tesla driving full speed into a tipped over truck, right? I worry about it. And so when we don't know why why it's working right so and and again yes people understand that it's learning a set of features but i I think deeply understanding where the potential sources of error are going to be right or i trained it on this data set okay intuitively tell me what other data sets this is going to apply to we we just we don't know yet are we going to know it maybe maybe we'll know this maybe at some point but we're so far from knowing it now uh that that it feels totally irresponsible to just hand the keys over completely to AI when we when we really, unless we have some kind of guardrails built in, it seems totally irresponsible to me. So is it real? Of course it's real. Uh, does it have interesting findings? Brilliant, fascinating findings. Um, 
do we know how it won't fail and how it won't completely destroy things? We don't. We don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that there needs to be something else to, to I think, protect against it. Yeah, I think it's an issue for us at the Packer Pushers and also our listeners because we essentially are the consumers of AI and for us it is a black box and we're just hoping to yeah. get the outcomes without necessarily knowing why. Um, so that's interesting that it could fail in interesting ways because we never, <laughs> the people who talk to us about AI, the vendors don't really talk about that part of yeah. it. I, mean, for, I think as a scientist, sometimes, um, again, there's really good science happening within AI and ML and machine learning, but sometimes the application of it, it, Sometimes it um, it frustrates me as a scientist because I sure. want to know why. Yep. Here's a better tool that works 99%. Okay, but why? How well is this going to translate? Right when when we traditionally when we review networking papers, somebody evaluates some network system and they evaluate it in some setting. You can't evaluate. You have a new wireless protocol. It's not feasible to deploy it globally, test it in every possible deployment, every possible use case to value. You evaluate it in a set of use cases, mm-hmm. and then as a reviewer, we think about well. Okay, how would I how do I think this would translate over to this other use case? Okay, you did this kind of data. What if I was like, you know, more of a, like a real-time data set? What if it was uh, something that was a low latency data set? And I can reason about how it might work because I know what the protocol is. But if it was a completely AI-driven protocol, I can't. I can't possibly reason about it. And then I just have to evaluate every single possible scenario to to know how it might operate. That's that's just not how I think we would ever deploy a network protocol, right? Like, hey, small changes in uh, in the inputs or the packet requests or the applications, and then I'm going to start executing ra- what might be random code. <laughs> mm. I don't think anybody would be happy about deploying something like that. So uh, as, as a scientist, sometimes I feel like I, I want more than a black box. I, I want more than that. But again, as a tool, where it just says, you know, with something like Geneva, where we go, I don't really care about the blah, blah. I care about how does the sensor operate? And this thing told me, oh, when I put send packets in this way, it reacts in this way. Okay, well, now let me use that as sort of a, a pointer towards follow-up experiments that I can do to help mm-hmm. you know understand it. So, so it, it definitely has a place, but um, just I made a black box and I'm not sure exactly what it's going to do in all cases. That's where I get a little um, frustrated. So we had teased talking about funding earlier. I want to make sure we get that conversation. And how much of an issue is getting funding uh, for research to support grad students? And and where does that funding come from? Is it the government? Is it private corporations? Where do you where do you get the money? So when it comes to funding, I, I can really only speak from my own perspective as somebody who works in the field of network security. So things are pretty good when it comes to network <laughs> security, right? So I'm sorry yes. if there's somebody, if there's the literature professor tuning in, I love you. Um, you're wonderful. I, I can't speak towards what that what that might look like. Um, so from the networking perspective, um, I, uh, again, just sort of my my perspective, it's, um, it, I think some academics have have a bit of a hard time with it at first anyway, because it's a, it's a different kind of communication, different kind of writing to write a grant proposal. We're trained and sort of beaten into not wanting to speculate too much in our papers for good reason, right? We should be stating the fact. This is what I did. This is what I saw. This is what this means. And here's what else it might mean. These are the threats to validity, that, 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 right? And then with a grant proposal, you're supposed to write about stuff you haven't done and what you think might happen and how you might evaluate it. How is this, how am I going to run this experiment? 
three years from now, I don't know exactly how I'm going to run it. I can't tell you detail. Like you want, I can't give you pseudo code for what the solution is. I don't know what the solution is. I'm not 100% sure what the problem is. You're asking me to tell you about what I'm going to be doing, working on a problem three, four, five years from now. How am I supposed to do that? It's a different way of communicating. Okay. The way to think about it is just not this is the right solution, but rather this is worth looking into. Um, and I think once folks sort of switch into that mindset, I think it becomes a little bit easier to communicate that. Um, so where do we mainly get funding? Um, the 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 one that sort of comes with, for whatever reason, more, I guess, the most prestige or whatever would be the National Science Foundation, NSF. Um, I really like NSF funding. I love the folks at NSF. I love that they really try, um, everything's a human process, right? But they really try through all of the processes that they have and the people that they hire to make it truly merit-based, right? That it really is, if it's a good idea, I don't care who you are. I don't care any of that, where you're from. It is, if the good ideas will see the light of day. And I really, really appreciate that. Um, and in addition to NSF, they're also, they also bring folks in as, as reviewers. And so you can really get a good, uh, firsthand view at, at how it goes. Um, but also I love a lot of the other funding agencies as well. Um, I've had some funding from the state department. Uh, of course there's like defense stuff. If folks want to go that route, uh, which can be, can be really effective. Um, but also I have to bring special attention to the OTF, the open technology fund. Uh, so these are folks who are primarily, um, focused on measuring and evading censorship, but also misinformation, disinformation, and they fund, a wide range of projects. What I really, really like about them is that they sort of fill in this, this, this gap that the NSF leaves. So the OTF, you can go to them and say, look, I have a really, really new idea, but I don't even know if it will work. I just need a little bit of seed money to just test the idea. They have that NSF. Usually they want to know, okay, like show me that, give me, give me some idea that this is going to have, a, you know, this is going to result in a successful outcome. Uh, and then also they have on the other side, OTF, if you have a very successful project and you're like, look, people are using this. I want to hire developers to maintain this. Like Tor, for example, gets funding from the OTAF. Um, and these folks have been absolutely instrumental in, in the success of my group, particularly that the evading censorship project. We went to them when we said, we have this simulation. Well, it's not even simulation. It was an implementation, but we didn't have any vantage points around the world. So we just kind of ran it in this you know, controlled environment. And it seemed like it had promise because uh, because this a this AI it is AI uh, it figured out um, one of the first things that it found right where I was like we really have something here uh, to evade censorship was it figured out how to crash the Docker container that the censoring uh, simulator you know <laughs> was running uh, and so once I realized okay it found a bug in Docker just to get the sensor to go away <laughs> wow we got we got to try this sort of. Uh, and so they connected us. Not, yes, there was funding, but really they connected us with the people also. with a huge, hmm. wonderful, embracing community of folks who study and evade censorship, which was, which was really huge. Um, so there's lots of different things. There's also this, um, I forget the name of it, but there's a group of uh, like a ham radio operator group who also fund research. Uh, my understanding is that early on, they got a huge block of IP addresses, uh, ended up, I guess, not really needing them, selling them, got a bunch of money and said, let's fund cool things about networking. So there's lots of these opportunities. Um, but I'll tell you the thing that I really personally kind of like and appreciate about applying for funding. Um, first off, it does not take 50% of my time, uh, as some folks, I guess, seem to think about academia. Um, 
here's what I like about it is that when you're applying for funding, you're, you're, you have to sort of talk about what you want to work on for two, three, four, five years into the future. It forces you to take a step back and think about, hey, I know what I'm working on today. I know the next one or two papers I'm working on. How do these points become a line? How do these lines become a plane? Right? What direction am I actually going towards? How often is it the case that we actually get the chance to take a step back and not just think about what I have on my plate right now, but about future directions and where you want to be? Uh, it's something that we all should be doing. Right? It's healthy for in our personal life, in our professional life. We should be doing it. And the the uh, funding, applying for funding, forces you to do that. Um, do I need that in order to do that? I guess not. If I was more disciplined, I would just do it without having to have like a, a, a proposal to write. But it's helpful and it forces me to do it. And it has led to collaborations that I don't think I would have had otherwise. It's led to research directions we wouldn't have had, uh, impact that we wouldn't have had. So there, I think there's, there's a, definitely a part of it that I personally really appreciate. So um, my wife is an academic. She's in psychology, so in the social sciences. And one of the issues in her field is that um, a lot of the research that gets published is paywalled or restricted by academic publishing companies. So there's this movement uh, for open access. I wonder if there are similar issues in computer science or in the networking field, and if you see open access becoming a force in academia. I think paywalling, especially federally funded research, is totally immoral. Uh, and in fact, I, I think um, that the federal government is now going to require a federally funded research to be open access. Mm -hmm. uh, it's something that I'm really passionate about. My colleagues are passionate about. We all put our papers on our websites. If you ever see something, a paper of mine, and somebody's asking you to pay money for it, just go to my website, get the paper there. Like It is not acceptable in my mind. You paid for it. You paid for me to write this paper. You paid for the results of it. You deserve uh, to have access to it. Um, You're talking about federally funded papers. Way. Yeah, yeah. For for federally funded papers, that's right. Mm -hmm. And and anybody who's at a school, frankly, that gets federal funding, right? Like, I have mm -hmm. the resources here. Most right? of them, yeah. Exactly, right? So I have the resources here that were made possible to me because of federal funding. I think you deserve it. Um, so... Yes, don't don't pay. We don't by the way, if you think you see some things where it's like, oh, this paper costs $15. Us authors, we're not getting a penny of that. Who's getting it? I don't know. I have no idea who's getting a Springer or something. I have no also idea who's getting yes. that money. Uh -huh. Yeah. So just forget it. Forget it. Like they um just get it. We want you to read our papers. We don't get any of the money and we don't want money uh for that. Like just read our papers, converse with us. So I think, um, largely speaking, CS, um, including networking, has really been moving much, much more towards making everything available. Archive um, has become a very, very popular website where people dump their papers as well, um, especially a lot of preprints. Mm -hmm. uh, I think there's issues with that in terms of the double-blind review process. I would personally rather see people, if they're putting on preprints, things that have not yet or are currently under peer review, post it under pseudonym or anonymously that's my that's my perspective. We could have a whole thing about peer review. That's an entirely process. different podcast. But, um, <laughs> yeah, but uh, but I I think open access is uh, anything short of it is just is just downright immoral in my opinion. And then the community is embracing that as well. So it's more things that are available. Um, ACM has been offering uh, more open access. Um, publications but at the end of the day go to the individual the author's web pages 
um, or go to Google Scholar. And a lot of times if you, you'll find a PDF version, I could not encourage that stronger. Well, Dave, we're running uh, up against the end of our time limit here. Any final thoughts before we wrap up? Yeah, you know, if there's one thing I wish that I would have done as an undergrad, and it's an opportunity I've been trying to create for more undergrads, is try research. Try it out. See what it's like. Check out research talks. There's a lot of these research talks from conferences posted on YouTube. If you're, if you're currently an undergraduate student, seek out research opportunities. If you're not sure how or what it even looks like, then reach out to me and I will try to point you in the right direction. And the reason you should try it out is number one, when you learn how to do research, it is an incredibly transferable set of skills. You are learning how to ask questions, solve things in new ways, and communicate your findings. Who doesn't want that? That is highly, highly transferable. Even if mm -hmm. you decide you don't want to go into academia, that is something, you know, there's a lot of startup companies that early on will exclusively try to hire people with PhDs. And the reason for that is because a lot of times they don't know what, what their product is yet. And so who better than somebody who can ask new questions, right? Identify new solutions and communicate why this is a problem we should be looking at. And the other reason is because you might try it and you might just find you love it. You might find that doing something that nobody's done before and having some insight that overturns assumptions that other people are making, there's there's nothing quite like it. And if you like it, then a PhD in academia or research and industry uh, might be right for you. So please try it. And for those of you out there uh, who are who are out of school, if you can try to create these opportunities for students to explore these sort of open-ended questions, try out new things. If you want just try to create these opportunities. Uh, it, it it can really pay off in spades. And if anybody out there is listening and wants ideas on how to how to scale this up and how to make it available, I've worked with about 80 undergrads uh, in just the six or seven years that I've been here at Maryland uh, as a tenure track. So uh, reach out to me and I, I'm happy to, to talk about it with you. But it, it can be a great, great opportunity for students. Awesome. So with that, then how can people find you if they want to get in touch? Yeah, so there's my webpage, uh, Dave Levin uh, at the University of Maryland. Also on Twitter, I'm distributed Dave, uh, and also now Mastodon, uh, as many of the folks from the InfoSec community, <laughs> distributed Dave at infosec.exchange. Awesome. We'll have those links in the show notes. Uh, Dave, thank you for joining us. We really appreciate it. Uh, it was a fantastic conversation. Thanks to everybody for listening. Uh, if you're interested in continuing this discussion, uh, there's a Packet Pushers free Slack group. It's open to everyone. Uh, even if you work for a vendor, there's no marketing. Just be an excellent human or we'll boot you out. Uh, but otherwise, the Slack conversation has over 2,000 engineers from around the world. You can find it at packetpushers.net slash Slack. Uh, we've also got a ton of more podcasts and free technical content. It's all at packetpushers.net. You can find us on Twitter at Packet Pushers. Uh, like us on LinkedIn, hear us on Spotify, and rate us on Apple Podcasts. And last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough. Mm -hmm.